Good morning and welcome to the Art Hour here on Soho Radio with Vasiliki Sanaku. Good morning, Vasiliki. Good morning, everyone. And me, John Sharples. And today we're very thrilled to have Jane and Louise Wilson on. Good morning, ladies. Good and for those of you who are new to the show, the basic format is that we invite visual artists on to play their music. So we'll ask you about what that was in a second and talk a bit about their practice. So that was a, an atmospheric start to a Sunday morning. What have we just heard? You've just heard Orphe's Descent into the Underworld. Um, it's from Jean Cocteau's film Orphe and it's by the composer Georges Auric. And um, yeah, it's interesting because the, the first signal for him understanding that he's entering in through the underworld is this bell ringing, which is the key to it. So it's interesting the Sunday morning, normally the yes. chimes of bells or something else. And I feel as though, given the nature of your practice, that probably has set the tone for the morning. So you've spent a lifetime investigating abandoned places, places of dread. Abandoned um, projects. Well, actually, that became that sound, soundtrack was inspired a work that we made, which was um, an outdoor um, installation. It was at Sudley Castle, and it was a piece that was uh, a sound work that you walked through um, a line of yew trees, and you had a trigger at the beginning and a trigger in the middle. The trigger at the beginning released this bell peal, an eight bell peal sound, and then uh, the trigger uh, in the middle it went into reverse, which is actually what happens in the film. So in the film, Orphe, his descent into the underworld, actually Cocteau reversed the footage. And so there's a kind of, there's a sort of way in which we wanted to kind of make it a cinematic space or mm. an experience of a cinematic space. And yeah, just to mm. add that the bell chimes or the bell peal that we've recorded was at Winchcombe Cathedral. And I think it happens every, was it 1,000 years to do oh, the wow. full bell peal, which yeah. was the full... yeah. What was it, 16 chimes? Uh, it's eight, eight, it's eight, it's eight. a full bell peel, eight. Anyway, yeah. it was to celebrate a long yeah. it's something about yeah. how long Winchcombe had been there. So just to introduce you both a bit more, this is, yeah. this is pretty timely because we had Richard Wilson on last month, no relation, <laughs> and we were talking to him about the imminent announcement at the Royal Academy of a pair, an artist duo being elected to the Academy, which we now know as Gilbert and George. <laughs> and so... Yeah. You two have worked together since submitting the same degree show to different art schools back in 1989. Mm. Yeah, that's mm. right, yeah. Mm. Um, and you're uh, identical twins, not yes. Yes. siblings. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and identity has been a, a big part of your um, research practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because Richard curated us in this yes. show recently, last summer mm. in the... Um, the Royal Academy Summer Show, so it was always a bit, you know, the idea was to work with collaborations or uh, collectives. And, and I just sort of think, when we, at the time when we spoke about it, we were kind of going, well, it's so, it's so odd because actually you think um, there's a generation now of artists who spend most of their time being connected and working with in a collaborative practice with many other, uh, other artists. And so it's not so unusual, and actually that's because of... Uh, the digital realm we're living in, I suppose, in a way. You, you're kind of collaborating all the time, in a way. And you think so that's changed a lot in 30 years? Like, how did that go yeah. down when you tried to submit the same work at the same time um, to two different schools? I mean, uh, it, meant, it meant the colleges had to collaborate. Yes, yeah, so it meant the colleges had to collaborate, and apart from the fact that we weren't like living off ESP, it did actually get <laughs> deliberately conceptualised that we did that. You know, I mean, there was yeah. an element where people were, um, you know, uh, really positive towards it. I mean, it wasn't something that, you know, we... we uh, a bit partly because of the work, because it, it sounds like it was an idea, but it actually grew out of the work that you were doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't have made sense to have duplicated what we did, because obviously a lot of the images that we were shooting involved each other, and so they were very much these tableaus that we set up. Um, so, yeah, they, that's how it kind of transpired. But I guess it's it's interesting as well, because you were just perceived as one identity in each art college. It was mm. one, one, you know, yeah. uh, artist. And, of course, then when you started presenting this work with this doubling mm. and this, the, you know, the kind of uh, images that presented us both in the frame, I think it kind of led to, uh, you know kind of another sense of questioning the institutions. So yeah, like, absolutely. Maybe. Yeah. So at that time, one of you was at Dundee and one of yeah. you was Newcastle. at Newcastle. Yeah. And, and then you went on to do your MA at Goldsmiths. And now we did you do that together? Right? Yeah. As in every yes. step of the way together well yeah i mean they, they, uh, i think we were looking that we wanted to make this joint application and at the time believe it or not i guess this is back in 1990 it didn't really happen very often that people would make joint applications um and so they were really chilled about it they just said who gets the m who gets the a we were like yeah great. <laughs> <laughs> and also there were other collaborations applying at the time that we were i mean uh, matt collins was working with his partner um bettina mm -hmm. and um 
you know, Bob and Roberta Smith. I mean, okay, yeah. it's one individual, <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of, you know. Okay, we'll get to Cat Power and who knows where the time goes and then back with Jane and Louise Wilson.
So here we are back with Jane and Louise Wilson. And you started basically from exploring your identity on your videos and your work, what, what you, were you presenting? And then we see a shift towards architecture and more architectural elements. First of all, where did this come from? So did you have specific influences uh, to incorporate architecture in your practice? And um, where did this happen? I think a lot of what we've been doing is, uh, you know, very much about where you started from in terms of your immediate environment. I mean, we used to stage very elaborate scenes and uh, setups in our flat in King's Cross. So we'd create uh, different kind of scenarios and different kind of um, interventions into diff domestic space. space, exactly into the domestic space. And so you change mm. it and transform it, paint it differently, use different coloured lights, use different props, elements. So then it started to grow from that. We then continued taking our bag of props and lights and elements and going into King's going into King's Cross and going into a bed and breakfast that we booked mm. out for around the corner. I mean, it all sounds very like it all just sort of rolled into one thing very conveniently, but it just was a gradual thing where we started to turn around and started to look more specifically at locations and at sites and then moving into bigger and more expanded forms of architecture, sort of looking at whole buildings and then going to Berlin and having... Um, uh, uh, looking at um, Hohenschenhausen at this prison um, and the Stasi headquarters, other things. So then it suddenly took a very, very political um, turn in terms of where we where we moved uh, in terms of those interventions. But, you know, it just grew from kind of trying to transform your immediate environment and treating it a bit like a studio. And you mentioned some of those places, they tend to be oppressive places mm -hmm. and places that represent some kind of overbearing authority. <laughs> Um, I think I don't know whether our flat did. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite interesting. Really. interesting. Yeah. No, fair enough. No, no totally. Uh, they, sure, yeah. but of course the Stasi yeah. headquarters, clearly, and Stasi yeah. prison. Yeah. And decommissioned military mm -hmm. sites. Mm -hmm. And what, what draws you to those places that have had this, uh, you know, violent, dark history? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess when we when we filmed in with the the film that we made in Greenham Common, um, it was in. Um, 1999 and mm. um, the actual site had been decommissioned in the early 90s so of course this was sort of something that we'd experienced growing up the uh, women's peace movement and being aware of the protests around Greenham and I think naturally our impulse was to go and want to see what it was like and what was inside there and why this was such a site of protest um, you know um, which you could see easily say yeah. in terms of what we did in Berlin again I mean that was we visited Berlin in 89 before the wall came down then we had a residency there and we were living there in 96 and so then we wanted to look at some of these parts of the east that we hadn't been able to visit and hadn't mm -hmm. been able to get access to before and to see and so looking at Hohenschenhausen and seeing that prison and other things the, you know those were points where you really wanted to um, uh, uh, you know experience those parts of the 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 east that you couldn't have done before. And I, I do find that spot that you see, tend to occupy very interesting, where it's somewhere between history and very recent events. So mostly mm. it's things that you've sort of lived mm. and then watched play out. Because mm. you were in a show a few years ago at Tate Britain called Ruin Lust. Mm. And ruins in art tends to be that romantic pursuit of history. Whereas for you, it's a kind of, it's something else that's mm. getting closer to, to contemporary current events. Mm. It's um, and so when you, when you go to somewhere like, you know, Chernobyl or or, oh, yeah. or even Stasi City, I think, you know, less than a decade after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that's not really history you're dealing with. So what, what kind of responsibility to those places do you feel when you go to them like, to tell a, hist a historical story, but also tell a present story? Well, yeah, I mean, I guess there is that sense that, you know, we're not necessarily making a documentary as such. So there is, that we don't have that impulse, but there is an element of that. Um, and what was interesting was when we, when we had filmed in, uh, well, we'd taken the photographs that we did in Chernobyl, we actually filmed in a site just outside of Kiev, uh, which is called Pirogova, which is where uh, we followed this narrative of a camera that was buried in, yes. a, in a decontamination site. So, um, but actually that, that was in 2010 and then in 2011 Fukushima mm. happened. Yeah. So yeah. you sort of are yeah. aware that actually in a way this seemed like it would never happen again. Yeah. And that in actual fact, when you think about recent historical events, but there's a really interesting, you know, uh, quote from E.H. Carr, art historian, who says, you know, art historians imagine the past and remember the future. And I think there is something of that element in looking at 
you know, a work that was made in 2010 and then actually seeing this real event happen again in 2011 and sort of, you know, that element of remembering the future is... Do you use architecture to disorientate? Um, that's an interesting question. I think we, we tend to look at art, not just architecture, but installation as well in terms of where we actually present and how we present the work. And um, it's, it's something that's much more about immersing you into a space, into a site, into a place. So it's not really just disorientate, but it is trying to kind of also give you a wider um, perimeter, uh, a wider experience in terms of looking at the peripheral as well as the, you know, as the main event and all of those mm -hmm. questions feed into how you how you represent something. And I was thinking there's a really interesting line in the, the film that we made, Toxic Camera, which was we worked with the text with um, um, uh, Dr. Susan Shupley um, who teaches at Goldsmiths and is an artist, and she wrote this text um, when she says, you know, um, is architecture the only machine capable of capturing radiation statistic rapture? And I think mm -hmm. that really kind of was key to us in terms of where we were thinking about these sites, in a way. And it's and interesting because it is manifest in the yeah. building. Do you find sometimes. architecture political as such? Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go to Eduard Artmiev uh, from uh, Solaris, the mm -hmm. theme of Bach, yeah. and we're going to be back in a while with Jane and Louise Wilson. That was Solaris. Uh, and wh what, what exactly did we listen, Jane and Louise, and why did you select this track? Uh, well, that's actually the Edward Altimiev performing the theme song to the film Solaris. So that's the opening bark. Uh, the opening bark. Yes, it's bark, actually. Sorry, it's not <laughs> the theme song. It's actually <laughs> <bark>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. Absolutely fabulous, and it's uh, and it is um, in the in the film Solaris, which was very. Important but it's also a really interesting moment in the film because it's the moment where um, it introduces zero gravity, mm. and so it kind of it's also the moment where there's the tracking shot across the Bruegel painting of mm. winter. Mm. So they're really kind of key moments in the film that this music comes in. So and it's really yeah, it was a, a big part of mm. uh, a big influence on us, and certainly when we were making film work, we were doing in the early stages of. Uh, 1990 etc being in East Germany and it's sort of being through in, in Berlin at that point and uh, anyway it was a very very uh, important uh, film for us 
So it seems that Andrei Trakovsky had a kind of a big influence in your mm -hmm. uh, films. I can see also some relevance with uh, the stalker mm -hmm. and the mirror and the way of narrating and some um, frames mm -hmm. that you have used at times. But also a very interesting element that I really was wondering and I wanted to ask. I mean, going to Chernobyl or being around the objects that they have been there and they have been contaminated, uh, it cost to Tarkovsky his life, more or less, mm -hmm. the life of his wife and his uh, sound uh, designer being there filming in a contaminated factory. They, they all died for the factory, same. Right. Yes, yeah. they all died from a lung cancer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. being involved in a project that involves Chernobyl mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and a highly radiated area, I mean, did you have any concerns? Did you about that? Did you get any well, precautions uh, of, of the dangers mm. that it might incorporate? Even the objects mm. that you wanted to. It's interesting because actually we actually featured the, fil uh, the the piece of work that Louise was mentioning earlier. The toxic mm. camera was talking about uh, Vladimir Shevchenko, who was the Ukrainian documentary filmmaker who went into Chernobyl three days after the reactor had um, had meltdown, basically, and he filmed there and documented and he documented and recorded the clear up and he made a film called Chernobyl Chronicle of Difficult Weeks, which became a very important documentary. Which is a brilliant Soviet understatement. Well, it's a total, yeah. total yeah. understatement. Chronicle of Difficult Weeks. We have it under control. Yeah. I don't yeah. think so. I guess yeah. it's, it's been yeah. a difficult week. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. but no, but I mean, yeah, it's a, yeah. it's a, it, it's, but it was a, an incredibly brave and, and, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the filming that he did and also in terms of what happened to him because he died eight months later. So you're aware that, yes, uh, we didn't, I mean, we were going in 25 years hence to something yeah. like this. So clearly we're not exposing ourselves to those kind of levels. Um, but it was interesting that that film that we made in relation to Chernobyl also focused very much at his endeavour and what he did. So, yeah. Um, and Jane's right in a way, actually what we did was we took our large format photographs of Chernobyl. We actually didn't film there in the end because we just sort of felt that the uh, the kind of narrative was mm. elsewhere. And in fact, you know, you can get a bus as a tourist and you can mm. go and visit um, Pripyat for a day um, from Kiev. It's quite straightforward. You can do it in a day. And um, you have to be over the age of 16. So anybody who's allowed onto the zone is over that age. And you're not allowed to take anything into the zone and you're not allowed to take anything away from the zone. You're not allowed to drink the water. You're not allowed to eat the food. Perhaps that's locally grown there. Uh, because of the soil contamination soil, but essentially contamination is in the soil and in the water and uh, you're, uh, if you go there and visit there then you know we were told basically for a week you'd be receiving the same sort of radiation levels that you would receive on a transatlantic flight so um, so we mm. were so yes we were probably you know thinking yeah I, in fact I think m more more the sense that actually the event was elsewhere because what was extraordinary about Shevchenko's film was that not only did he document uh, an event of the nuclear meltdown, his uh, film in itself became an event because it captured the impact of radiation for the first time on analog celluloid film. So this is really an extraordinary document and I think this is what we were interested in following this materiality in a way and what happened with the film and um, what happened with the film camera. The film camera was actually removed from the documentary film school in Kiev two years after Shevchenko died because mm -hmm. they realised its, its radiation levels were so high and this was where we filmed. It was buried outside of Kiev in a place called Perigovo. Would you consider to do something now with Fukushima is a continuity of projects uh, in I this kind of aspect. I don't know, I mean, I, um, it's strange because I think, like we said, it was mm. strange that you were there working 2010 and then that actually happened in 2011. Mm. I don't think it was something we'd necessarily, you know, want to sort of... Uh, well, I, I just accept, I, I sort of think it's very different, all the, yeah. the visual documentation from Fukushima would be digital, yeah. so you actually wouldn't have necessarily the, the capacity analog. to capture what radiation would look like on on a digital format, uh, it would just be white noise. So you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't pick it up. Whereas it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary that with the analog and with um, it being film, celluloid, li literally the film, the yeah. materiality of it actually mm. picked up. Uh, yeah, it, I, I, and I, I could tell in that work yeah. that you presented about Shevchenko, you he's like a martyr hero to you guys in the in the story mm. that he told. Yeah, uh, I mean, they, it's really interesting. His his tutor at the film school. I mean, they you know they'd filmed uh, he'd filmed the Battle of Stalingrad, so mm. you actually realise that these you know 
uh, cameramen were going in there with this kind of impulse of almost being uh, like documentary filmmakers, but also like war reporters. I mean, you know, literally, mm. it was kind of that moral impulse to kind of document the truth and the evidence. Mm. But, you know, at great personal expense. You know, And so I think as well, it's very different to see Chernobyl to what happened in Fukushima, because literally, it was kind of a lot about Chernobyl, certainly, a mm. kind of, I mean, it was an epic scale in terms of the, the disaster, but also it was a man-made disaster. I mean, somebody mm -hmm. said to from Moscow, switch the reactor off. Literally, yeah. that was a kind of man's hubris. It wasn't like we had a tsunami or something. And, and you were there as researchers and storytellers, artists. But how do you feel about busloads of people going to places like Pripyat? That kind of dark tourism is mm. a troubling. Area, I mean, you it? sound like busloads. I mean, I don't think it's regular, but everyone's jumping on it. But I'm no. just saying it. And also, I don't suppose they would necessarily have gone to maybe all those sites that we no. looked at to fill to, to record. Yeah, exactly. It's true. We brought a measure. Um, that's. I think part of what we did was when we photographed there, we took a, um, a, a two-yard measure. It's a, um, a measure that was p uh, painted to scale, and uh, we used that in all of the images that we uh, photographed. So we placed this yardstick measure, and um, you know, it was more about trying to find a place where you could sit it or uh, balance it or you know install it and especially given the wreckage and, and obviously the precariousness of the sites that you were working in. But also it was very key to have a measure there because it symbolised that this place was constantly being measured, constantly being ascertained for what its levels of radioactivity were, but also the idea that it was something that looked like you, the voyeur, the viewer as well. So lots of things. From Bach to <laughs> Wagner. <laughs> yes. And back to the measurements of Jane and Louise uh, Wilson. <laughs> radio and not television because you've all missed the <laughs> Wagnerian ladies chorus in here while, while you've been gone yeah. so, just yeah. for the break we're talking about yardsticks and mm. the role they play in your images and I think they're very interesting because that subtle intervention for me is what stops the images crossing the road into that terrible phrase like ruin porn mm. because it as you say it draws attention mm. to the act to the scrutiny to the yeah. act of looking and uh, so, I mean, mm. how how important is it to you to, to put that small intervention into the places, but then, you know, not set something up? Mm. Well, I think because the, the, the thing was where we realised that obviously it, it had been so photographed. I and mean, of course, you know, you're a, 
aware of those uh, famous Polidori images of mm. uh, Chernobyl, etc. You know, so I mean, you know, you're kind of following in quite a kind of already well documented tradition mm -hmm. there somehow. But we also felt that bringing in just one intervention needed to happen, and, yeah. and and thinking of the measure, it's also an imperial measure. It mm. kind of hints at a sort of Soviet imperialist past yeah. as well in terms of Ukraine, and so and now it's particularly the identity of what's happening in Ukraine and. Um, and you just sort of think, you know, at that point, we, we were very uh, conscious that we uh, could not just look at this site of disaster without bringing in something, an element mm. that would, as you say, force you to think about that act of looking. Mm. And how sensitive mm. do you feel about dealing with someone else's history? So this is, you know, it, 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 when you go to places like mm. Pripyat or, or, the, or Berlin, the, the Stasi mm. city, yeah. You're dealing with someone else's pretty raw recent history, and is that uh, a definitely heavy a history that had an impact mm. on you? Mm. Well, I think it was. I mean, the Cold War terms—they have an impact in. in well, I, th I think certainly going to, to Berlin and going to the Hohenschönhausen that was difficult because obviously it was the last thing to kind of get really processed. Would be the idea when you're trying to link two cities together is something like a, a Stasi prison because people don't really want people didn't really want to focus within that on that. It was a strange thing, but I think you were very conscious that it was uh, they saw it very much as a memorial site so you couldn't just treat it as a neutral backdrop or something that you could just then you know um uh, uh use and and kind of um improvise and and you know take apart it was something you had to be very respectful with but maybe you have a space that the locals don't have because it's so mm -hmm. it's so heavy for them to deal with well i think a slight detachment i think probably with that, at that time i think people in berlin just thought that was kind of weird that we were looking at such a you know the recent past in a way and you know because obviously at that point the art community there were thinking very much about forward thinking forward and thinking about how how they position themselves in terms of a global context yeah. or whatever you weren't looking at your own what was on your own sort of doorstep yeah. in a way which is natural did yeah, they embrace you, know. you in your research and your yeah research? i absolutely i'm not but i think you know them they'd probably just thought that's a bit weird why are they looking at you a, know and interesting enough stasi city's never ever yeah. been exhibited in berlin yeah Mm. Um, but but interestingly enough, what what really struck us was how um, the architecture, uh, the the politic was so manifest in the architecture because you look at a building like Jay mentioned the prison, but it was once a Nazi catering depot that was then taken over by the Allies. Yeah. It was a temporary internment camp under the Russians, and then it became you know a kind of Stasi prison. So and and you know, at the end there was even discussions about whether or not. It before it became a memorial site, whether this would become right. a kind of you know site for uh, travel agents, a right? So the, there's this sort of really extraordinary yeah. um, kind of journey in a way, which I'm sure is in yeah. you know in yeah. a lot of architecture, a lot of buildings you see. Yeah. What is the building that most kind of challenges you now in order to to do a work um, historically or the whole package? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know whether it's a specific site. As such, I think maybe it's uh, a geography. It's a geography. It's a cycle. It's a, maybe it's a um, archipelago. <laughs> yes, a archipelago. That's a good answer. We kind of geomapping yeah. or geodesic uh, yeah. applications. Yeah, we'll know more next year. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's <coughs> go to Blair. <laughs> <laughs> Blur. Absolutely. Hoo um, hoo. Song two. Song two. When I was young 
problem It's not my Blur taking us back to the Great, 90s yeah. there. It seems a good time to ask you about the Turner Prize in 1999. Yeah. So you guys were nominated alongside Tracy Emin and a eventual winner, Steve McQueen. I mean, that was and a, Stephen a, Pippin, yeah. A tough year of Steve Pippin, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, how was it being part? I mean, that, those days now look like the golden age of the Turner Prize <laughs> with people. I think you got a dinner. I think you actually yeah, got a sit down dinner. Civilized. You got to invite a guest, and you know, it's kind of you know, it's kind of old school. Yeah. Of course, a lot of the oxygen of that whole prize was taken <laughs> away by Tracy's bed. But <laughs> uh, yeah, as I say, it, it yeah. feels to me like those days where people actually got really upset and wrote yeah, into newspapers. Yeah. That's that. It now looks like a, a golden era of, of that sort of thing. So what was? What I mean, you know, but you must yeah. remember that was before you even had a Tate Modern. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so there was a real period where you know contemporary art and and where it's lay, you know, where it sat in terms of our, our public consciousness awareness. I mean, you know, who would have thought something like the Turbine Hall and Olafia Ellison could have happened? Yeah. You know, everyone lying down and staring up at this, you know, this sun. And I mean, that was you know that was a the weather kind project, of phenomenological yeah. moment of our encounter collective. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. which you know at those times, you know, something like Tate Britain or, or as it was, it was the Tate. You know, hadn't you didn't have that platform then, and so there was something very. It was quite local, you know. Mm. And another thing I was thinking mm. about in relation to your delving into archives, and how much does the way the world's moved on since I can go on to YouTube and watch Shevchenko's film? That's right, yeah. And so, how much has that changed your practice well, and how co- you think about the world? I think it's it's different in that, of course, we all have access to the great archive of you know google in a way don't you really now and i suppose that's why actually what you know looking at specific archives that are about uh particular artifacts and having access to that it's actually why it's become more in more important in a way in some respects or it's become more interest to artists working with that yeah because because you can't literally just see it on google you have to physically go in and kind of actually see something in terms of what it is as a collection or as an artifact so yeah i mean that's certainly how we've and but also when we were making the work that we were back in 96 i mean you Mm. didn't you didn't have you didn't have a computer (laughs) you didn't even have online kind of digital you know those things didn't exist so you know it's an interesting moment to imagine that everyone sees it as yes this is just all online and it's part of youtube and everything else but was there was a moment when you were making moving image work where this wasn't actually something Mm. that was out there it didn't exist so there is a a way that you know this sort of language is just kind of evolving and growing but it's also something that i think hasn't got and you get all complex and i mean this is converse you have artists that work entirely from the source material of youtube so you know it's um but i think it's that something about that methodology like you're saying and thinking about how archive is uh become it becomes a kind of thought process in terms of what in terms of your practice, in a way, yeah. and uh, do you still work with film? Yeah, uh, yes. I'm I mean, your cameras and uh, your equipment. I mean, legs now. Some well, yeah, analog in terms of still and stuff, uh, mm-hmm. still image, mm-hmm. um, but uh, digital in terms of moving image a little bit more now, just because. Well, I think it's interesting. We always did always shoot mm. sixteen, and uh, mm. gradually we started mm. to move into something more digital in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. But yeah. It's still been something that the majority of our work has been done on originally is 16. Actually, it probably carves out even more of a space for the importance of the specificity of installation mm. because mm. You, you were, were so used to seeing things on that mm. three inches that mm. actually mm. putting things that immerse people is actually more resonant because of that, because of 
that constant attachment to a small screen. The screen, well, in a digital, yeah. I mean, that's constantly, it's like an extra limb, isn't it? You just always have it attached to you now, isn't it? It's something that I think you, you always see that as a portal through which to to experience things on which to kind of you know begin to kind of uh, uh, create and, and process stuff and so it's interesting a lot of people who are making work indirectly in relation to that are also kind of talking about that and there is a big kind of discourse around that and the impact that it has in terms of moving image so you mentioned the um the Tate era and of course we're now in a new Tate modern mm. and a Tate era now Maria Balshaw has taken over mm. as director of Tate and of course yes. she's someone you work with mm closely when your show was at the Whitworth mm. in 2012 and she was director there. What's, mm -hmm. um, what kind of director should we expect Maria to be, do you think? I think she'd be fantastic. Yeah. I think she'd be brilliant. But I think it's really great because you could kind of sense, I mean, the Whitworth was a great case in point. You know, all of the, you know, the curators, from the curators uh, to the technicians who all work there, they're all practising artists mm. and they're all supported by the director. So, you know, I just think she's will be fantastic news for the team. Yeah, and it also understands yeah. that about working in a team and creating yeah. something that has that kind of energy, but also very much links to also artists. Also, they have a really, they had a really strong... corporate. Well, and, and they also have a very, you know, strong kind of community um, profile there as well, which yeah. I think is really important. Um, and also they were linked to the university very key yeah. as well, so yeah. through education. So there's a lot of things there that just would seem like really great for the Tate yeah. to have Maria there. And sh she described your work as having a, a steely, and an undertone of steely feminism. Do you recognise yes. that label? <laughs> yeah, I'd, uh, uh, I'd say that's uh, fantastic that we have a woman in that position. Yes, yeah. thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Great, yeah. considering where the elections have gone. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, that's brilliant that Maria's there, thank God. And uh, I think she's she's a really great choice. And um, yeah, and I think it's, I mean, you know, again, we have that awful statistics of like something like 60% of all graduates that are coming out of art college are women. 30% are represented in galleries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you think, what happened to the other 30%? Where did mm -hmm. they go? Yeah, definitely. I'm Echo suddenly that. feeling outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> time, time for a track facility. Yes. <laughs> we listen just now? Uh, that was Dustin O'Halloran, uh, Opus 17. And why did you select a Justin? Uh, Dustin, uh, just because that's the kind of music that I listen to when I have to go to work every morning. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> it's really great when you do rush hour and you've got to kind of just get your head into gear. So it just, yeah, you can zone out. Yeah. But I mean, we've got this nice studio now and um, up, up mm. by uh, in the East End. So it's... Mm. Uh, it's not such a bad journey. Jen, yeah. I know that you teach at the Royal, Royal College. College. Yes, exactly. Well, Battersea is a bad journey. So yeah, I'm teaching there with the uh, postgraduates. So it's a, a really interesting group of students. There's 40 that we have at the moment and uh, very diverse, very mm -hmm. different. Really great. 
Louise, are you teaching as well? Oh, I'm teaching on undergrad at the moment, but sort of part time, same as Jane, we but are, in Newcastle. We and are. we're about to uh, become um, practicing fine art professors at the university. So, congratulations. So, that's um, going to be a different change, but it'll be great because it means we're doing it together and it means it's 40% research. Well, I was about practice. to say, do you enjoy teaching apart and doing something mm. apart from each other given mm. that so much of your work is together? Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're not joined at the hip. But <laughs> yes, um, we know. Obviously, we we it, it's it's really interesting to see other artists and see you know other students how they're working. I think that's always the the diet the discourse that you see in art college yeah. is really interesting. It's really important to kind of connect with that. Um, and I also think it's great to also have that advantage of us being in two places, but also being able to meet together. I mean, that's something that's also been very interesting. It's got mm. different challenges, but it's nice to have that separate geography and then come together. Have you been inspired by your Sorry. students? Yeah, I think students really yeah. do. Uh, I mean, you know, hopefully there's a kind of uh, a, a shared space where everybody's kind of, you know, uh, feeding off each other and it kind of builds into this kind of, uh, you know, interesting discourse. So that's what you would like to see. And when you do come back together, do you find consensus easy to come by? Is it a, is it a fractious collaboration <laughs> or is it very smooth and natural? Um, I think you just, I, I suppose uh, people always ask that. Consensus sounds a bit dull, really. <laughs> yes, I don't really think bit, we're... It's a bit Norwegian. <laughs> I, I don't think we're sort of into consensus necessarily, but I think what you're into is just sort of that element of, of, of possibly... Um, how, uh, recognizing someone else's thought what, that you can't recognize your yourself in a way, in, in a sense that actually you see you see something as a good concept and a good idea, mm. and um, and I guess that's unarguable. Mm. Whoever comes up with it, you know, mm. that's something that interests you, and you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it it would be really boring if it was something that was very kind of um, smooth and easy. But yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a an element of that. You know, we we sh <coughs> sorry we we're in this kind of space that we are, which is not exclusive to us. I mean, it's an yeah. art practice, and there is something very kind of demanding and challenging about it mm. as it is. So, what is yeah. your next challenge? Well, next challenge as well. Uh, most immediate, we're going off to um, LA in um, April, mm -hmm. and. Um, we have a solo presentation at the Getty Museum at the Focus Gallery. So mm. it's a series, it's a uh, work body of images and a, a video piece called Sealander, which was uh, filmed along, along the Normandy coastline, so in the fortifications along there, and very much inspired by a text by J.G. Ballard, um, which, is co which was um, called A Handful of Dust. Um, your first films have uh, no uh, narration, and thanks. And then a second body, a, se mm -hmm. a second cycle. They have a specific type of narration. Why did you choose that? I think the first one that really changed that. Mm. I mean, we began. We did a piece um, for uh, an exhibition at the Quad in Derby, and it was interviewing people in the Bosnian Herzegovina Centre, which was this commission that we did around um, people who travelled to um, Derby and how they travelled, made their journeys. A lot of refugees who'd come into the country, and that started to build into a, a soundtrack in terms of the installation that we made their voices. And then we made a piece called uh, Unfolding the Iron Papers, which looked very much at the Kubrick archive, and we met with an actress, Johanna Tushtigan. It was her voice that we wanted to then mm -hmm. use in terms of the the film that we made because she was so um she was so central to in a way it became such a portrait of her it was an archive but it was through the portrait of her that mm. we expressed th that aspect of the archive because she was such an eloquent central character to it as well so she was an actress cast in a film that never was yeah yeah, That's yeah. so exactly. you made the film about the film that never was it's a very interesting <laughs> kind <laughs> yeah. of circle yeah. and i was fascinated that it, it was that work that you showed in um Ecolano, like next mm. to herculaneum that's right yeah because the works about Stasi City or Star City might have felt like a more um, immediately relevant thing. To well, it's more of a city ruin. A than city more ruin. Of a, yeah. yeah. So how did, how did that work sit there in that very historical context? Mm. Do you enjoy that? Mm. Um, I think so. I think the um, the director is a big Kubrick fan. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that was sort of one of the reasons as well. But also because actually what's really intriguing about um, the uh the voiceover with Johanna is that she's actually, uh, she reads the lines of the script of the character she would have been, but she's also recounting her experience of meeting Kubrick. So she's kind of in this position or in this kind of possibility of becoming in a way. And I think that's what 
is really intriguing still possibly mm. for you know for us in a way is that, is, is that she never inhabits the character mm. her ca her lead character in a way so this is something really intriguing that you're seeing a kind of uh, a, a process in this uh, and, and obviously she's reflecting back um, and because obviously as a character was it was yeah. uh, based on the book wartime lies by Louis Begley so it's you know the the uh, uh, a, a way a horrors of the Holocaust so there's a yeah. big thematic to it through from that initial book and then seeing something I guess uh, you know it, it's not of the same kind of uh, scale but something like a Colano is looking also at what happened to a civilization and to a people and to where they were lives were destroyed so there's things there that are still remnants of that and so there's it's a very you know there's something memorializing there as well I guess yeah yeah and even in those big memorialized places the thing that really draws the crowd and people want to see are the small human details right. like the family casts or the food that's still there and mm. so it, I suppose there is a link with that mm. imagining the story that might have been yeah I, I guess as well, well I mean interesting the Getty Villa was based yeah. on the Villa Papyrus as well which yeah. is you know um, in Ercolano in Ercolano yeah and let's go to another journey with uh, Alice Coltrane and back with Jenny Louise Wilson mm -hmm.
where did you just travel us with this track? <laughs> Sorry? <laughs> where did you travel us? Where did I travel you to? I don't know. There's some kind of other sort of space of... I, in a way, we, we loved the Alice Coltrane, but also because, mm. you know, there's a whole series of artists. Terry uh, Riley could have been somebody else that we picked, or it could have been Steve Reich, or it could have been... But it was it was great to have um, Alice Coltrane because she works with the harp and she does it so beautifully. And which are yeah. your next creative journeys? The next creative journeys are in 2018. We're going to be uh, in an, an exhibition at the Met, which will be... Uh, around art and conspiracy so going mm. full circle back into that space of understanding sight and understanding the power and the 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 architecture of where something is and that will be from a very very early work that we did in 1996 uh, but it's kind of exciting as well because it will be in the um, Breuer building now because mm. the Met owned the Breuer building which used to be the old Whitney and which you know is being restored back to how it was originally so mm. I mean a real sort of brutalist beautiful bit of architecture yeah, an interesting time to be going to America to yeah. think about conflict and conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Who knows? We'll be in charge by the time twenty eighteen well, comes around. Yes, exactly. 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 What email leak will happen? Yeah. And, yeah. Yes, we're not. We're not so close to Trump Tower, though. So. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. From architecture, politics, photography, installations, and journeys around the world and abandoned places and more. <laughs> Jane and Louise Wilson, thank you very much. Thank you uh, for having for being with us today, ladies and gentlemen, Joe. Thank mm. you. Have a good sunny Thank Sunday. You. See you, everyone. Cheers, Bye -bye. then.